Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and it's great to have you with us and great to have a panel of journalists with us to do what we do on Fridays, which is to figure out what happened this week and uh, analyze it a little bit for you. We've got freelance journalist Joanne Silberner with us. Joanne, thanks for coming back. Great to be here. We've got Seattle Times investigations editor Jonathan Martin. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, good to be back. And we have freelance journalist Monica Nicholsberg. Hey, Monica. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm going to check in with my producer and say, I'm not really hearing uh, the audio, so I'm going to trust that if we don't have storms of people, uh, okay, I- I'm told we're, we're coming through. Uh, that's good to know. So we've got, listen, before we start the show, I want you to know uh, we do our week in review uh, every week. We also do our year in review every year, and that's coming up. It's going to be at uh, the Nestholm Family Lecture Hall at McCaw Hall, and that's on Thursday evening, December 15th. And uh, we're going to have the newest member of Congress, U.S. Representative elect Marie Glusenkamp Perez, is going to be a special guest. We're going to have uh, the cra- Do you remember the story, um, uh, the Kraken fan who spotted? The cancerous mole on the neck of a yeah you're nodding your head Joanne of a of a, uh, a visiting team staffer what a what a year she had um, let me just pause again and tell my producer uh, Bernard I'm hearing you instead of the show so if we can fix that that would be great um, so uh, anyway we always end the show by um, talking about what made us smile. Uh, that's great. Thank you. Now I hear now I hear our program. Um, uh, so on stage, we're going to we, we every year we have this tradition of playing voicemails from you where you tell us what made you smile this year. So my point is, will you leave us a voicemail and let us know what made you smile in 2022? And uh, that phone number is 206-616-3248. Again, 206-616-3248. And by the way, finally, if you want to come to the show, you'll find out all the details at KUOW.org slash events. So we hope to see you there on the 15th. Okay. Having said that, uh, let's start with uh, the week in review. Some of the things that happened this week, Monica, the city of Seattle is facing a budget deficit, a shortage of police, They've got this big business tax going, though. This week, the city figured it out and passed a new budget. What should we know about it? Who who wins and loses in this new Seattle budget? Well, it's kind of hard to pick winners just because we went into this, like you said, with big budget shortfalls. So it kind of seemed like a process that was more about stopping the bleeding. Those are shortfalls that are estimated to come with the potential for a recession. But I think that Councilmember Mosqueda did look pretty good throughout this process because she really spearheaded Jumpstart, which is this tax on the top salaries at the biggest businesses in the city. And that program is the reason that the budget was able to to happen this year, basically. Mm -hmm. The city would have been in a much worse position if it weren't for this tax, which is bringing in consistently more than was even expected every single year. Joanne, you said you were astounded by that. Yeah. Um, How did they make a mistake like that? Is that a mistake when a when when a tax brings in more money more money than you expected? <laughs> well, the amount is always an estimate. They they can't know exactly how much it's going to make until it starts being collected, I think. So, I'm not sure that it's a mistake. 
I think that the surplus is maybe evidence, uh, at least from the business community, that maybe the Seattle Council has more funds than it is being responsible stewards of. We certainly heard that narrative. But at the same time, this is a city with some really, really big, powerful, wealthy companies that pays really high salaries. And I think it, it kind of makes sense. This is home to Amazon. Well, I think what worries me, though, is that people are going to lose trust in sort of the process. You know, if, if, if that much more money comes in, it kind of says to me that the people who are planning this and who think this is a good idea, and it very, very well may be a great idea, but if they're not getting in what they thought they were getting in, if they're getting in that much more, it makes me think they're a little out of control. Well, as I understand it, salary data is um, closely protected. There are only certain parts of the municipal government that have that information. Ah. So as the city council and lawmakers are planning and are writing these laws, they only have so much insight into what's happening there Mm. until they actually start collecting the tax. tax. Interesting. I would say that one of the winners was Bruce Harrell. Uh, he had uh, he his predecessor Jenny Durkin was famously adversarial with the council. Bruce Harrell is a longtime council member, and I think the process here went more favorably for uh, for Mayor Harrell than it did um, for Durkin. And he got about ninety nine percent of what he asked for in his budget. Uh, he wanted to keep a the unified care team, which is the the successor of the navigation team, which deals with unsanctioned campments around the city, had a different approach than Durkin did. And uh, he also there, there was a kerfuffle over uh, staffing of SPD. You know, this whole budget to me, the overhang is the rise and rising crime rate and a real genuine concern, particularly about the rise in violent crime. Seattle's been a historically had a historically had, to, had a low violent crime rate. Um, Blessedly so. Um, and it's really spiked now. I saw the Seattle Times editorial board today had a figure that the number of shootings in Seattle has increased 300 percent in the last decade. Hmm. Um, so there was an effort to keep to keep the Harrell wanted to keep more uh, larger um, staffing allocation for the SPD. There was some back and forth with the council members, including the very progressive wing that wanted to basically permanently close off um, about 80 positions. That progressive wing did win on that one. Do you mind if I illustrate that for you? I I know exactly the kerfuffle you're talking about, the exchange, and it's interesting. And so I, I have a little bit of audio from that. So the city council decided to eliminate some Seattle Police Department positions that haven't been filled. They keep not getting filled every year, but the police department hangs on to the money, basically, right? And so at the city council hearing, Councillor Sarah Nelson said, eliminating those positions, that's a bad idea. Restricting SPD's authority to use salary savings to pay for emergent needs like overtime and basic equipment, training, and permanently eliminating 80 positions in the department. Uh, That might be standard budgetary practice in normal times, but the mayor didn't do that because with SPD down about 30% of its uh, deployable force and um, uh, gunshot uh, fatalities, 35% higher than they were in, in 2020, these are not normal times. Now is not the time to do that again. Uh, and we also just have to change the narrative that helped 
get us to this staffing shortage. We have to change the narrative. Okay, <laughs> that narrative she's referring to is that the city of Seattle is anti-police. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Councillor Nelson bringing that up really annoyed Councillor Lisa Herbold. I'm disappointed that people um, uh, in voting on today's budget are unwilling to highlight the positive things that we're doing. Um, this creates the false narratives that some are saying um, we need to we need to change the narrative. I, I feel like. Um, the, 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 the very argument about changing the narrative is actually perpetuating that narrative. You can tell me who's right or you can just analyze the uh, the debate. But, you know, it made me wonder, is is Seattle, is this a kind of defunding the police? If whether it is or not, does the public think it is? Does the does the police department think, does it make it hard to recruit? That's the argument, right? Well, the. The majority of the council did that existing council that were there at the time did support defund, and now they've completely walked that back. So the narrative it's not some kind of manufactured narrative. They did support a fifty percent cut in uh, in the Seattle Police Department. So um, you know this back and forth here. Who's actually you know who's actually right or or not? I think what the city of the residents of the city of Seattle cares about is a functional police department. And whether or not they're going to be able to fill those 80 positions, I think you can you can try and find a defund narrative if you're looking for one um, with that that kerfuffle. But what uh, the challenge is going to be now for again, for Harold, his administration is to actually keep hiring cops and they've had a hard time with it. The council has in some cases has um, has tried to make it easier with hiring bonuses and then try to pull back the hiring bonuses but uh, I think as a what I hear in my source network and my friend network is that just a genuine angst about where we're heading at with crime in the city. So um, and that's on the council in part by supporting defund a couple of years ago. And it's certainly on Harold for running a police department that's functional. Monica, any final thoughts? I, I totally hear all of that. At the same time, I do think it's a little disingenuous to bring up this pretty nitty gritty detail that would probably not be scrutinized to this extent if it weren't for the defund conversation a few years ago and then say this is perpetuating a problematic narrative. It's like, well, you brought it up. You know, <laughs> the narrative would not be we wouldn't be talking about this today if it wasn't raised during this budget discussion. So I think it is a little bit political bringing that up in the first place. Okay, uh, since we started this talking about the city's budget deficit, and uh, yes, the jumpstart tax is bringing in a lot of money, but the real estate excise tax has, has is not bringing in uh, so much money. That's decreased, the soda tax decreasing. So hanging over this is the question of whether the city is going to find a way to tax us more, particularly to to tax the haves, to, to put in more progressive taxes. So with in that background comes a decision this week by our state Supreme Court that the state can begin to collect and plan on the new capital gains tax that the legislature approved last year, except that tax is not has not been found to be constitutional yet. A lower court said it's not constitutional. So, Jonathan, before I ask you how that is possible, maybe we should just recap for listeners what the capital gains tax is and what the what the debate is over whether it's allowed. Sure. At like the 30,000 foot level, Washington is one of the few states that does not have an income tax. 
and we rely on regressive uh, taxes like sales taxes and also very high consumption taxes. We have the highest liquor and tobacco and among the highest gas taxes in the country. So uh, the progressive um, – well, the Democrats have been pushing now for eons <laughs> since I've been a reporter to try and get an income tax. Um, polling is very unfavorable for an income tax. No one really likes to have their taxes go up. Uh, and they are – the capital gains tax has been seen by the critics of the, of the income tax as a nose under the tent. Um, nonetheless, it's uh, – the capital gains tax is more popular politically than an income tax. Uh, capital gains tax being that you're t- uh, imposing a 7% tax on capital gains above $250,000. And it's, it's lots of exemptions. Um, Joanna, Joanna and I was talking like mm-hmm. uh, retirement accounts, you know, um, primary in, uh, primary residences, some small businesses. Right. Lots of stuff that you will not lot of be exemptions. paying yeah, yeah. tax on. So um, anyway, this they, they finally passed it last year. Um, it applies to a very small number of people. Uh, and again, I think this is really going at sort of, uh, we were saying before, the high earners, particularly probably in the tech community. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a, the opponents shopped for a venue, Douglas County over in Wenatchee, and got a favorable ruling from a judge saying that the capital gains tax is an income tax, which has been prohibited under uh, the Washington State Constitution, a ruling from the 1930s, I believe. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is the big test. If the capital gains tax is upheld by the Supreme Court in January, it would probably blow a hole in that 1930 case, which would open the door for an income tax. Mm-hmm. And, and so how come the state How come the state can, as you said, the Supreme Court is going to start hearing this in January. So why would the Supreme Court say, meanwhile, you can start assessing this and, and, and setting up the rules and planning to collect this? You and know, is that oh, some window into what the court's going to rule? I mean, legally, all they did is stayed the, the, yeah. the um, enforcement of a ruling. So yeah. um, I think that I think just for sort of the sake of it's, you know, we you start to collect the tax in the income tax year and you base it off the April filings for your income taxes. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't. They didn't really explain what they were thinking. Okay. But th- does this mean that they could have to return the money? Yes. Yeah. If they yes, they've said very clearly if they they would have to return the money well, with this interest. Sort of, this were with interest. Yeah. I mean, this reminds me a little bit of the parking meter issue of the the parking where did that money ever get returned? Remember that where yeah they had uh, to cancel a bunch of tickets yeah. because they switched the parking enforcement from po- police to transportation department right. without really having the authority to. Do that. Right. So they had to return that. But does that, did it get returned? I, I never followed up I on don't that. I think people's tickets got ripped up. Oh, they just didn't. Oh, whether it. oh whether they had to. I don't know that people got their money back if they paid their tickets. I don't. Not that I know of. But you were, Monica, you were about to say anything to add to this? I, I just think it's still going to be an uphill battle, even though this, there is this kind of small temporary victory for progressives, because the way that the language of the state constitution is written is it requires income to be taxed uniformly. And historically, other efforts to get an income tax through, the court has said that's not possible. And I think the language is a problem because Democrats constantly say we want progressive taxes and progressive taxes by nature are not uniform, right? They they burden low-income folks much less than high-income folks. Mm-hmm. And so I think 
while making that case to the public and then making the case to the court that this isn't actually an income tax is it's just tricky. It's it hasn't worked out in the past. Well, they've they've written it as an excise tax. It's, right. Um, so it's an a, a tax on the transaction of selling the capital gain, the stock or whatever. Right. That's yeah. the argument. Yeah. Yeah. And boy, we're going to be talking about that plenty in January. <laughs> Trust me, that's going to be a huge deal. Um, before we take a break on Week in Review, I want to check in. We have our, our health reporter, Joanne Silberner, here. Joanne, emergency rooms are filling up again, including Seattle Children's, mostly not because of COVID, right? Well, this RSV, right, not because, primarily because of COVID, but we've got RSV mm-hmm. for which there's no vaccine yet. That's uh, a some respiratory syncytial virus. virus. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's common and it, it hits kids and it hits older adults uh, pretty hard enough that it's, it's making a difference. The ER at Children's is up double or triple to what they are, would be normally without it. And of course, you know, these days you don't know, is, we have an early flu season that's come in and that's hitting hard. And, you know, there are some st- still COVID cases around. So mm-hmm. yeah, the, it's a combination what they're calling a triple-demic or a tridemic. And there's no vaccine for RSV, right? That's correct. Oh. Uh, there's an experiment. There, there's actually several in development, both for children and for older adults. I'm actually a volunteer in uh, in one of the trials, but I'm pretty sure I got the placebo. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had no reaction and uh, at all at the site or anywhere. So I'm thinking maybe I, I'm, when it comes out, I'm going to get it. Though this is a common enough virus, and it does hit people over 65 pretty hard. Meanwhile, we've got um, flu. The flu situation is 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 worse than it's been. Of course. COVID seemed to protect us from the flu for a while. Well, only in that we weren't be around other people to exactly. catch it. The, yeah. yeah. And it's an early flu season. I, I usually don't get my flu vaccine until um, mid-November because the flu seasons have been late, you know, January, February, March in past years. And the vaccine, you know, holds pretty well for four to six months. But I... I got mine in, and I, the signs were out there, and the public health people were saying, hey, get your vaccines early, and they were right. It, yeah, it, it, if you haven't gotten yours, get it, because this is going to be a bad year for that. Joanne, I have a question for you. Uh, how, how is the staffing uh, in the hospitals? Is there, are, they, are they with us, the surgeon patients? Are they hitting the same kind of staffing crunches they did in the pandemic? I don't think it's at that level yet, but um, Seattle Children's did put out a note saying, you know, if you need to go to the emergency room, go. If it's an emergency, we will see you. You know, they're they're making do, but these are people who've been working really hard for a long, long time, for two or three years now at full flat out. So I haven't heard anything, but my guess is – I, I, oh, I have heard actually from – people I know who've been to ERs around the region, that, that the waits are still long. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's all the more reason to get your vaccination so you don't have to show up there. And showing up there can be kind of a tricky... When do you go? You know, in, in what situations do you go to the <coughs> ER? And, you know, really, it's if you're having trouble breathing, if you have a particularly high fever, you know, there are reasons. On the one hand, you want to stay home because you don't want to infect anyone else and you don't want to... Um, you know, you don't want to be a burden. But it, on the other hand, if, if you know, you're having trouble breathing, if you have a particular high fever, especially if you're a kid, um, both the State Department of Health and the King County, Seattle King County Health Department have great websites that give you a checklist of when you should go and when you should stay home. But you, you really need to pay attention this year. 
One more, can I, we, we've got to take a break, sorry, Jonathan, but we've got, uh, before we take a break, one more health note is that Thursday was World AIDS Day, and yeah. you were telling me that activists are worried that, that, that AIDS is not getting enough attention. No, you know, there's only so much room, I think, for people's attention, and um, HIV is still out there, you know, people are still getting, and especially, uh, and, and the, the state almost lost its program to give uh, people preventive care for you know, preventive tablets that they can take to prevent getting AIDS. That was supposed to run out of money December 1st. They found the money. It's going to go through. But, you know, people are getting less and less focused on HIV. Syphilis is now coming up as yeah, a problem. Yeah, I saw that nationwide. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's a rundown of some, just a few of the of the big developments of the week as we do on Week in Review, and we've got a lot more to talk about. We're going to take a short break. Union busting, question mark. Um, this, uh, the, the sheriff of Pierce County on trial and more when we come back. Stay tuned for more of Week in Review. You rely on this podcast to stay informed and connected with your local community. And we rely on you. Without listener support, this show simply wouldn't exist. Be a part of the team that makes this show possible by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute. Donate at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thank you. You're listening to Week in Review on KUOW. I'm Bill Radke, about to bring you our year in review coming up on Thursday evening, the 15th of December. We'll be at uh, the Nesson Family Lecture Hall at McCaw Hall. So, number one, I want you there. Find out how to get tickets at KUOW.org slash events. Number two, we always end that show with what made you smile this year. So leave us a voicemail, and you can be part of that lovely montage of, uh, of, of happy news. Uh, just call this number, 206-616-3248. And tell us what made you smile in 2022. Again, the phone number, 206-616-3248. And I'll see you at McCall Hall on the 15th, on Thursday evening. Back to Week in Review now, the task at hand. We've got freelance journalists Monica Nicholsberg and Joanne Silberner. We have Seattle Times investigations editor Jonathan Martin. And this week, we found out that the first Starbucks to unionize on Seattle's Capitol Hill is closing next Friday. KUOW's Diana Opong told us some Starbucks employees see this as a union-busting pattern. In a statement, a Starbucks spokesperson says the reason for the closure is due to issues in and around the store that jeopardize staff and customer well-being. Specific safety and security examples were not given. (laughs) Starbucks says they will work with the union and staff impacted by the closure to help them relocate to other stores if possible. For barista Tyler Bolt-Stewart, this feels like deja vu. Stewart says he worked at the Olive Way Starbucks that closed in July. This has happened to me before. It was almost verbatim the same spiel about Olive Way or Broadway Denny. Monica Nicholsberg, how do you prove that a company, Starbucks or otherwise, is union busting versus closing underperforming stores? It's very difficult, just like it's difficult to say someone was fired because they were forming a union or joining a union. There mm-hmm. are a lot of factors that go into these decisions, and it's really hard to say this is the reason. But that being said, there is a trend here. Starbucks has closed more than 10 stores that have unionized, and it kind of doesn't matter 
Whether or not you prove union busting, it still has a chilling effect if it makes employees afraid to organize. And what I've heard from labor leaders is they're worried that this is becoming a playbook, that Starbucks is writing a playbook for other companies amid this new tide of union organizing. Yeah. Isn't the uh, the number of petitions to hold union elections, hasn't that been dropping for, for Starbucks? I haven't seen those numbers, but I wouldn't be surprised because these are low-wage workers. They they don't have a lot of power. That's why you form a union, right? So if the specter of losing your job or of your entire store being closed, especially outside of Seattle in a town where there might not be very many job opportunities, where it's the only Starbucks, I think that's a real fear for people. Yeah, Bill, I believe you're right that the pace really um, – there was a – flurry of union activity. I, I, I saw an, um, an NPR story that there was, uh, I think, 300 union elections yeah. across the country in the last year. Mm-hmm. And and 80% of those yeah, uh, elections were right. in favor of former unions. But unions are, in the, within the stores, unions are more popular than Frappuccinos. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I can, and, but they, again, the union, I, I think there's like 9,000 Starbucks stores. So mm-hmm. this is, we're still talking about a very small percentage of the union but I, me- I remember last early this year or last year this year I, I don't know the time has time's a flat circle in the sure pandemic it is. indeed um, the uh, that Schultz ca- uh, came out and said they were giving extra benefits to non-union stores like yes. better sick leave um, credit card tipping famously you, can, you don't really can't really it's hard to tip basically in Starbucks stores with the credit card mm-hmm. um, so. And Schultz, sick time accrual. And Schultz himself has very been very anti-union over his whole career. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of smoke here, I guess. I, I'm waiting for the for the play. I mean, this seems like such a Greek tragedy to, to me. You have Howard Schultz who made his career on, you know, trying to be good to his workers. And now it really does look like he's union busting. And, you know, the, to have the two things happen – it's, it's just um, – I think it's epically tragic. Well, I think this, that's part of this playbook that we're talking about. And you've seen Amazon do this too, which has had its own unionization efforts. The companies say, you know, we're a great place to work. We don't – you don't need a union because we're giving you health care. We're giving you career advancement opportunities. And it kind of obscures the point, which is yeah. that's all voluntary and um, and unions give power to workers mm. to try to correct the imbalance of power between corporations and and individual workers. But these companies would respond by saying that it's really unnecessary. It just is going to complicate things. We're doing everything that you need already. Yeah. And, and Monica, the National Labor Relations Board is investigating hundreds of unfair labor practice charges. Uh, um, but even if they were found to be doing something wrong, um, you were telling me that doesn't mean they would pay a big cost for doing it. No, there are some legislative efforts in Congress to change this. But right now, the most that they would really be on the hook for would be some back wages. So there's very little incentive for companies not to union bust because, number one, it's hard to prove. They can say they're doing it for all these other reasons. And number two, even if they're caught and they get in trouble, it's really just a slap on the wrist. Yeah. Okay, well, we will, uh, again, that, that store on Broadway and Denny is going to close on uh, on Friday the 9th. And Starbucks says they will work with the union to explore opportunities for staff to transfer to other area stores. <laughs> uh, we'll see what happens. Let's, let's talk about another development here on Week in Review. We have the uh, sheriff of Pierce County 
on trial. Ed Troyer is accused of an illegal encounter with a black newspaper carrier. Here's a little bit of the report from KUOW's Amy Radel. Troyer is charged with false reporting and making false or misleading statements to a public servant. Prosecutors allege that he called in a massive police response and falsely claimed newspaper carrier Cedric Alzheimer had threatened his life. Jonathan, this trial is being live streamed from the Tacoma courtroom. Why are you fascinated with this case? Well, I'm fascinated by this case because it is a test of sort of the blue line. Um, Pierce County is much more, uh, it's, uh, in regards to law enforcement, is more conservative than King County is, like more support for police. So we'll see if a jury is willing to um, convict the sheriff. And, not, and he's not just any sheriff either. Uh, Ed Troyer was the spokesman for the Pierce County Sheriff for eons, I think maybe like 15 years or something like that. Um, really kind of the face of law enforcement um, for Pierce County. And, um, you know, it's Troyer's already faced a lot of consequences for this one incident where he... Maybe he, we should fill in for those sure. listeners who haven't followed what happened sure, or allegedly a, happened. A newspaper carrier named Cedric Altheimer was delivering papers in Ed Troyer's neighborhood. At uh, night. At night, like two in the morning. Um, say Cedric Altheimer is black. And uh, Troyer uh, started following him and um, essentially kind of boxed him in, accusing, I think trying to accuse Alzheimer of kind of stalking his house or something like that. Hmm. Um, and then calls, calls a uh, officer needs help, which is the, the bat signal for <laughs> police. Uh, that, that, that's the thing that gets like, that means like officer is like being, un, uh, you know, life's endangered. 40 cops arrive i think something like that no they were called i think called. They, yeah, at some maybe, point they were yeah, called yeah up. um yeah they're called yeah and because troyer said the alzheimer's th- uh, threatened to kill him mm-hmm. um in the tacoma police report um p- uh, uh, police report uh they said basically he backed all he reversed that he he reversed himself said actually no he didn't threaten to kill me so this is a case which that, is a which is a uh, at least a, it's a misdemeanor yeah, that's wh- false which reporting is, which is what he's being charged with here uh, he's already um, – Troyer has already been listed on what we call the Brady List, which is a list of officers who have credibility problems such that they shouldn't be testifying in court or have to be disclosed. Um, and there's already been an independent investigation basically found that he um, violated um, – you know, le- led to these charges from the attorney general's office. So that's the backstory. I'm fascinated because it, what it really says about the state of policing right now uh, and um, whether or not – Somebody as high profile as Troyer um, could be held accountable for something like this. And he's sticking to his guns. He's saying that he always felt that he was in danger. Yes. Their their defense strategy is apparently that the officer who wrote the report lied uh, and had a personal animus against Troyer. Right. It's mm. so complicated. Mm. Uh, okay. Well, that again, that case continues. I think I heard it. It's supposed to wrap up by next week. I don't know how reliable those timelines are, but we'll we'll see what happens there. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about to catch us up on here on Week in Review is that this week the Quinault Indian Nation on the Washington coast got twenty five million federal dollars to move some of their important buildings to higher ground. There are tribal communities at risk of being washed away, washed away by superstorms, 
rising sea levels and wildfires raging. Of course, that's President Biden making the announcement. He's also sending money to tribes in Alaska, Maine, Louisiana, and Arizona. We asked Quinault Treasurer Larry Ralston about this, and he told us that 700 people are at risk in the coastal village of Tahola, and this money's a big deal. We could make assumptions that we'll be able to um, move critical infrastructure up into higher ground, such as our one and only gas station, our only post office, our only community center, uh, which are less than a quarter mile from the ocean right now. Monica, there are other reservations threatened by water and fires. How are these tribes chosen? It's not entirely clear. It wasn't an application process, which is how some of these Interior Department grants have been awarded in the past. But the government says that they combined the status of these tribes' relocation planning, how far along they were in the process, with their risk level. The other important thing is other grants have already been issued, and the government has said we want this to be a model for relocating vulnerable groups going forward. So it's not the end of the story here. That's just the initial round. Yeah, relocating vulnerable groups, and, and and also, is this a kind of acknowledgement that Indian reservations bear the cost of climate change without having caused climate change? Absolutely. I, I think that's very clear, that indigenous communities, like many other people of color, have done very little to contribute to the situation we're in, but they stand to face some of the worst effects of global warming. And I think the federal government hopes, and many people hope, that other communities will be will have access to these types of grants in the future, like, you know, for example, black neighborhoods in New Orleans facing hurricane threats or farm workers in Arizona facing extreme heat. I think all of that should be on the table because these communities really, really need help and they're really not to blame for the situation that we're in. Yeah. And yet, uh, let me just make a connection here. And yet this is you're talking about groups very affected who didn't cause the problem, and yet we saw with the United Nations um, freeing up money for developing countries, uh, finally, that they had to write into that um, promise of money for developing countries that this is this is not a legal liability. <laughs> uh, this is not because these developing nations call this compensation or reparations, but the U.S. officials call it loss and damage resources, which sounds like something that we're going to give to you uh, probably, you know, unless we take it back, but we don't have to do this. Yeah, and the lack of accountability is concerning because pledges like this have been made since they started doing COP 27 years ago, you know, with very, very limited results, if any. So, that is, you're getting to the nature of the problem, which is all of these efforts so far are voluntary. They're at the whims of whatever administration is in power. And the U.S. is very reluctant to really take responsibility in a real way for, number one, its role in climate change and also the share of the burden that it should be taking in order to help these other communities that are in peril. And this is really just the beginning. I mean, you know, you brought up uh, poor communities in Louisiana and other places. We're going to have whole cities who, that are going to be unlivable not that long a time from now in Miami, New Orleans, and they're going to be coming somewhere. And a lot of people think they're going to be coming here. And I don't know how ready we are here. I mean, the amount of money that needs to change hands and soon 
is enormous. It is, but it's really small in comparison to the amount of money that we're going to be on the hook for when these things actually wash out. Exactly, yeah. And we, we really need to start doing that now. And it's good to see these communities getting that money, but there's so much more that they should be getting and so much more that other communities, including Seattle, to get ready for pe- for you know people what's 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 important about the tribal work is that the tribes are being kept together you know they're not being broken up but when we see whole cities going underwater we're going to see a lot of different people from a dot, you know spreading out all over the place and we're not ready to handle that part of it either i i heard a term in that in the coverage of managed retreat yes uh, which is a i think it's a really telling way of thinking about this. We are retreating from uh, a force that seems pretty irrepressible. Um, and you think about the Quinaults have been on that land, right? The headwaters of the Quinault, Quinault River and Converse of Quinault River and uh, the Pacific Ocean for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Their net pens are down there. I've spent some time up in that part of the Washington and um, it's gorgeous country. Um, but thinking of they've survived there, thrived there for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's now um, to a a force that is uh, not their doing um, and out of their control. They're mm-hmm. having to move up, up, upland. But they've already had the ocean has already breached that seawall. I think yeah. recently. It's hard, and, and the mental health effects also really need to be taken into account. It's deeply uh, elemental when you're home. You know, is is being destroyed before your eyes, and you have to move. And and you know, just moving moving things is a start. Especially good if you're keeping the community together. But it's still taking an enormous. It's going to take an enormous mental health toll, especially for Native communities who have historic trauma from being relocated, as we all know. But also who have since colonization been advocating for a much more sustainable relationship with the environment, with using resources in a way that will allow them to preserve for generations to come. So it's it's got all of these layers of complexity that really need to be respected throughout this process. Yeah. Uh, Coming up in a moment on Week in Review, the Seattle Times and ProPublica uh, put together an investigation into Washington State schools for students with severe disabilities. And it really uh, opened my eyes. Uh, Jonathan, you edited this piece. And um, so we want to hear about that after we take a short break. We'll be right back with more Week in Review. It's KUOW's Week in Review. Quick note about our Year in Review show coming up on Thursday evening, 15th of December. Find out all about it. It's at McCall Hall. Just find out at KUOW.org slash events, and then we'll see you out at the show. And leave us a voicemail right now about something smile-worthy. What made you smile in 2022? Here's the number, 206-616-3248. And we can play that tape play your story as part of our show on the 15th again 206-616-3248 okay back to week in review and we've got uh, freelance journalists joanne silberner and monica nicholsberg here and also jonathan martin seattle times investigations editor you edited an investigation into a network of schools for students with severe disabilities these schools are funded by taxpayers but they're privately run and the state 
doesn't much track them despite years of reports of abuse and lax academics. So, first of all, Jonathan, why do these schools exist in this private public way? Sure, this is complicated. So, and this is a so say you have a student with severe disabilities. And under the federal um, federal law, you have to have an um, individualized education plan, an IEP, that provides them an education that's appropriate, that gets them appropriately educated. School districts oftentimes have a hard time educating kids who have severe disabilities. And mm-hmm. so what these schools are is essentially a relief valve for school districts. Um, they're called non-public agencies, uh, NPAs. And they are allowed to be funded um, by tax dollars under under federal law. Um, what we found, um, we initially basically got a series of tips that um, these schools were just really terrible places for kids with disabilities to be. Um, what we found in the investigation was that particularly one chain of, uh, of NPAs run by um, Fairfax Hospital, a psychiatric hospital, um, which is a subsidiary of the largest behavioral health corporation in America, a billion-dollar corporation called UHS, runs a network of school called uh, Northwest Soil. And the, they're the largest NPA in Washington, so it's kind of fair game to go after the largest of the, of the group. And we, uh, we found that essentially they uh, dramatically understaffed their facilities. They have several campuses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tacoma, Redmond, and Tumwater. Okay. And um, dramatically understaffed their campuses – um, there's all kinds of uh, re- reports of abuse um, and um, restraint, isolation. Um, they essentially have uh, essentially have no curriculum. Um, these reports have been coming in to the state superintendent of public instruction for years and years. We went back to 2012, um, and they've also been going to school districts. Um, the superintendent of public instruction, the state education director, essentially says it's on the individual school districts that are sending the kids there to enforce the contracts with Northwest Soil and basically provide the oversight. And that's legally? He couldn't, the state couldn't enforce if they wanted well, the, to? Though the, school, the state could essentially yank their license, of their ability to operate. They haven't. Um, they have done almost nothing with Northwest Soil. And what the problem with the superintendents, the, the OSPI's take on this is that if you think about like there's 40 different school districts that send kids to this one school. And so you think about, you know, if you're like trying to put together a mirror with the little shards, um, it took us, you know, it took two reporters on my team a year, Mike Riker and Lulu Ramadan, with support from uh, our Taylor Blatchford, our engagement reporter. Um, it took us almost a year to do this. We have... Um, We've had, had a pursuing Northwest Soil as well to try and get records. They've had they've, we've got tens and tens of thousands of records we've got compiled, and just to get put together the shards of this mirror to get somewhat of a picture, um, and it's real money. It's um, soil itself has taken in forty million dollars in taxpayer money in the past several years, and they're for profit, right? Yeah, they're for profit. Um, and, um, you know, overall, it's, you know, 100, you know, over $100 million spent on, on – and it's a small number of kids too. I mean it's like, it's, it's like a tiny fraction, the deep end of the ocean of the special ed system. But because kids have these high needs, they're very expensive for taxpayers. Um, so we felt very compelled to do this because, again, high amount of money, very vulnerable kids. Uh, and what appeared to us was they're really being – shorted by the system and a, and a lack of oversight. Yeah, I mean, the 
the reports are horrifying. They're, it's a lot of physical violence. I, when I was reading the story, I couldn't believe it. I think the only, I, you couldn't even call it a silver lining, but I'm grateful that we have local investigative reporters yeah. because it really doesn't seem like anyone else is holding these schools accountable. And the other thing that struck me from it is it reminded me of the private prison crisis that we have in this country where the government is outsourcing its responsibility Mm -hmm. for a a vulnerable, often forgotten community, group of people to a company whose objective is to make a profit. And, you know, the whole reason that we have government services is because the free market cannot solve all problems. I know that's a controversial thing to say, but especially for kids with special needs going to public schools, you know, the the wealthy families who have kids with special needs can afford to send them to private institutions of high quality and give them other services. But for low-income families, public school is their mm, only or middle option. Income. It's for middle income. Yeah. yeah, for their kids to get the care that they need. It's just this really, really gross negligence. I'm glad that you did the story. Yeah, you know, you mentioned prisons, and when I read it, I was thinking about an article in this week's New Yorker on hospice care that's been turned over. And again, it's that difficult issue. You know, these are nonprofit. I'm sorry, these are for profits doing government's bidding, but not doing government's bidding, not taking adequate care. These people in uh, in hospices across the country are in, in for profit hospices are suffering mightily. And it really does bring up that idea of can government do proper oversight when it's hiring an outside contractor like this? We'll have another part of the project that running this weekend on Sunday. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and then another part actually going to that point about the inequities built into the system. We're interested in that as well. Okay. This is at seattletimes.com. And you could search Invisible Schools Project and get you right to it. Uh, yeah. Thanks for the work on it. Thank you. And, great um, work. Yeah. And more to come. Um, we're, we just are we have six minutes left in our show. We have not talked about this oh, no. uh, story. We're getting closer to something to smile about, thank goodness. But whether you want to smile about this or not, no. there's a possibility. No. Joanne is not happy that more grizzly bears could be coming to the North Cascades. The Biden administration has revived the idea after uh, President Trump's administration killed the idea. Here's a little of our correspondent, Courtney Flatt. Biologists say Washington's grizzly bear population won't survive without some help. According to the National Park Service, grizzly bears are an essential part of the North Cascades ecosystem. The bears help keep other wildlife populations in check. Grizzlies also spread nutrients throughout their habitat. They do spread nutrients throughout their habitat. I think that's a poop reference. But um, Monica, uh, why you you seemed like you might be willing to smile about this. What what should we know about the possibility of reintroducing grizzlies to the North Cascades? Well, first of all, it's not just poop, although that's part of it. It's also the animals that they kill. They leave the carcasses behind, which ah. spreads fertilizer and nutrients. And, and they aerate the soil too when they dig around. They aerate the soil. the uh, The carcasses also feed, you know, vultures and scavengers, and there are all kinds of reasons that big predators are important for ecosystems. They regulate ecosystems to keep herbivores from, you know, in check and they move around different populations of animals and lots of effects that we don't even know about because we don't understand ecosystems that well. Um, you know, we're just one part of them, although we are a big part. So yes, I, I'm pro grizzlies. Grizzlies make me smile. I don't want to necessarily hang out with one, but I am, um, I think that this is a really interesting plan and it's a topic that I've covered in the past. Um, I've covered the gray wolf introduction in Colorado following the successful reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone. And it's just kind of a pet interest for me because um, I, I think that we have a, a, we've misjudged 
big carnivores throughout our history, and we now have a chance to restore our relationship with them. But wait, Joanne, do you feel better now after <laughs> no. hearing about the poop and the vultures? Aren't they a threat to salmon? Well, I mean, they're... I think we're a bigger threat to salmon. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I take your point. And we do need grizzlies. It's just I'm just getting used to the coyotes on Bainbridge. And the idea of getting used to, to grizzlies is going to take an effort. And by the way, if we've seen the, the like the fat bear week and the Alaska grizzlies, of course, we see them grabbing salmon from the waterfall because it's amazing. But that's not th- – these are these inland grizzlies are – I think it's a different kind. I don't know if it's probably not a different species, but it's – I don't think there's such um, fat salmon eaters from what when I've read, um, but so they they might get introduced. And there's some. Uh, it's not just Joanne, right? <laughs> there are some folks who do. This is it hasn't happened because some folks don't want more grizzlies. I, I'm not fighting it. I know it I has know to happen, but it's hard. I ran into a grizzly in hiking with my wife in Montana, uh. and um, and luckily we were with somebody who was part of the. Grizzly Federation, like the, uh, the bring bring back the Grizzlies Federation in Whoa. Missoula, um, knew what to do. But uh, what, got, and what did you do? Um, I think we froze and and wet ourselves. And, <laughs> and, Excellent. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, I I'm I'm very I'd be very reluctant to run into a grizzly again on on a trail. Here's one thing we're, we're about to end the show, but one thing I don't quite understand is that I'm. There are people saying, oh, well, grizzlies are scary and they eat the livestock or they threaten people or campers. But um, but they're told, well, it's not very many grizzlies. You know, you're probably not going to find a grizzly. On the other hand, they're told, but they're so important to the ecosystem. Like, are there lots of grizzlies <laughs> or there's just a few grizzlies? Well, you only need a few grizzlies to make a big difference. Okay. Just, you only need a small number of predators because they live longer and they eat so much more versus uh-huh. when you think about prey food, prey animals, they proliferate much more quickly and they eat a lot, a lot of grass or smaller animals or whatever it might be. Um, so that's why predators are seen as kind of a regulator, a check on that, those huge population spikes that you see when they get hunted out of existence. That makes total sense. Excellent answer. That's good to know. So we're here. We are a couple minutes left in the show. Does anyone want to leave us something to smile about this week? Well, it's the start of ski season. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah Stevens oh, Pass yeah. just opened, uh, so I'll be hoping. That's big. Yeah, early, very early season. Good. I think it's a good. It's a La Nina year again. Big, uh, big snow in the mountains, um, and you know we really got to find a way to get through these long, dark Seattle winters. Right. Um, Getting outside is the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Without the grizzlies. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Just ski around them. (laughs) Uh, Anything else? Boy, I was hoping to come up with something during this hour and got myself so depressed about climate change that I there is one, I think, spark of of light that I encountered in being here, and that was uh, working with the King, Seattle, King County, and the state health, health departments. I was really impressed with how, t- on top of things they are, how helpful their websites are. Everything I said about vaccination, if you need to understand more or better, go to their websites. They're terrific and they're a real help. We have less than a minute left, Monica. I'm smiling because we are able to be back in the studio today <laughs> after several years of doing Week in Review over Zoom. And we all tested this morning, and yep. um, I'm just I'm glad to be here in person because it, there's nothing like an in person conversation. 
Thank you. Me too. I feel the same way. Agreed. I, I love you guys. It's Week in <laughs> Review uh, here in the studio. And I'm talking about Monica Nicholsberg there and Joanne Silberner, freelance journalists, and Seattle Times investigations editor Jonathan Martin. Thanks a lot for uh, being the show this week. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having hey, us. Hey, thanks so much. Enjoy the slopes. Uh, Week in Review is produced by Kevin Canistet with social media and live streaming work by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. And Bernard Wallet runs the board. Thank you for listening. Again, uh, year in review coming up the Thursday evening, December 15th. Tell us what made you smile in 2022 by calling 206-616-3248. Again, 616-3248. And if you want to see the show, find out about it at org slash events. We'll see you at McCall Hall on the 15th.